Okay, hi folks and welcome back to episode 33 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today I have uh, a guy who I share some similarity with in that we're both half French um, and um, his name is Stéphane Guillenet. Uh, although I know people will pronounce that differently, depending on which part of the world you are in. Um, but Stefan, welcome. Thank you, Laurent. Yeah, good. Oh, you're the first person to pronounce my name correct in, um, <laughs> I'm suspecting, decades. But um, we, were, <laughs> we were just talking off, off air there. That we, are, we, we are literally um, half French. In that I have uh, a French uh, mother, or had one. She passed away, sadly. But your father was the French half of you. And, yep. uh, and your mum's American, and, uh, and my father's a Scotsman, so uh, that's kind of cool. Um, but that is probably um, about as similar as we are, other than I did actually live in the States for 10, 10 years, which uh, is another subject. Um, but you're uh, a very interesting um, person. I've, I've been following much of your work on um, uh, Twitter. One can't help but... Um, uh, uh, follow you so I do recommend people follow um, we'll give the links at the end of this and of course you've got a great blog on your website um, which I'll also link to in a minute but let's just tell tell the folks a bit more about who you are which I'll, I'll let you do if you just want to give us a quick brief intro to who is Stefan Guinea. All right so um, <clears throat> I've always been fascinated by science even as a child I was drawn to it and I would you know, sponge up any science books I could get my hands on. Um, and by the time I got to high school, I was pretty well convinced that I was going to uh, going to do research. So I went to um, the University of Virginia and got a Bachelor's of Science in Biochemistry, which I got intending to uh, to lay the groundwork for future work in neurobiology. Mm. So... Um, I went to graduate school at the University of Washington and got my PhD in neurobiology and behavior at the University of Washington. And at the time, I didn't have a, a very clear idea of what I wanted to do, but I was really interested in neurodegenerative disease. And so I was studying this disease called spinocerebellar ataxia type 7, or SCA7 for short. Yeah. Um, but it turns out that the reason probably no one listening today has ever heard of it is because it's <laughs> quite a rare disease. Um, and so I started looking for ways to uh, kind of extend the reach of my research. And uh, there's, I would argue that there's really no modern health problem that's more impactful than obesity. So I started looking in that direction. And, you know, while I was still in grad school, I started doing a bunch of reading and I I uh, I was struck by how much of uh, body weight relates to neurobiology. Mm. I mean, the brain is really the core organ when it comes to determining how much we eat, how much energy we expend, how much fat we carry on our bodies. And, I mean, it really makes sense if you think about it a little bit. It's, it's kind of common sense, but... Um, it's something that I think is often overlooked in uh, in these discussions, and so by the end of graduate school, I I was pretty pretty much obsessed with the neurobiology of obesity, and I uh, decided to get my hands dirty, 
And so I joined the lab of Mike Schwartz at the University of Washington as a postdoc and worked on the neurobiology of obesity. So the Schwartz lab studies um, body fat regulation by the brain and how that um, process changes in overweight and obesity. Right. And so my uh, postdoc work was on that. And during that time, I also... Um, you know, developed a love for writing and science communication and found it very rewarding to be able to translate insights that a lot of people are unfamiliar with from the scientific literature and bring those into a public domain and make them accessible to people who love science, people who are intelligent but might not have a background in this particular area. Um, and so um, I enjoyed that so much that for the last year I've been... Uh, taking time off to write a book on uh, the neurobiology of overeating. And so that's what I'm doing primarily right now. Cool. Well, I, get, I didn't actually know that. So we, um, we can get into some of that. I mean, I think this has to be one of the most exciting topics we could get into because it is a fabulously misunderstood area with so many people thinking they understand it and um it i mean it it's an incredible topic in which as i just said there are so many people with very strong opinions as to what the causes of obesity is um you know you've got you've got you've got the folks that talk about um just from an energy balance perspective you've just mentioned behavior um of course you know unless you're a rat stuck in a cage and you know forced to feed or 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 um, neglected to be fed at certain times, you know, the, there's that angle. But of course, in a free living environment, there's all kinds of, of factors. You've got people swearing blind that we need to count their calories and macros and weigh their foods. You've got, um, I mean, I could go on forever with all the different mm -hmm. different angles to this. But of course, there doesn't actually, there really isn't a clear consensus uh, to this whole topic. And given that it is perhaps the biggest or one of the biggest problems that f that is facing society today and is one of the most abused areas by industry in terms of supplements, diets, detoxes, magazine columns mm -hmm. and articles, celebrity weight loss diets and gurus and all that kind of stuff. And yet, ironically, we we still don't necessarily know what the cause is or at least you know, well, I mean, my catchphrase, Stefan, is very much context um, throughout this podcast. And, of course, people don't use context when they, when they talk about how to deal with this or what, what the cause is. So let, let's get into this a bit. Can you just describe for folks or classify, firstly, when we use the word obesity, what, what actually are we talking about? Yeah, <clears throat> so obesity is... I mean, the the true true definition of obesity is actually rather vague. Um, obesity is a condition of excess body fatness that is um, sufficient to impair health. Mm. So that's that's the real core definition of obesity. Now we've come up with quantitative definitions to make it more specific, and those rely on uh, body fat percentages. And the most common is the body mass index. So body mass index is basically your weight corrected for your height. And um, body mass index of uh, 
18.5 to 25 is considered lean, 25 to 30 is overweight, and 30 plus is obese. So that's the, that's the most commonly used um, metric for um, obesity, although I'm sure your audience is, is quite familiar with the uh, occasional shortcomings of uh, using body mass index to measure body composition. Sure. Yeah, I, I think if you're working in a health and fitness environment, of course, one is exposed to this idea that, or that, you know, we, we're familiarized with the word body composition, which takes us away from this idea that, that simply a body mass index is, is potentially misleading in those that may have a higher level of, of, of muscle mass and so on. But given that, that most people actually aren't particularly fit and most people don't have any significant muscle mass, do, do, how do you feel the whole body mass index thing works for the greater population? Yeah, I, I've come around to thinking that it actually works pretty well. I mean, I think, um, I think that uh, sports and exercise science crowd is going to run into a lot more instances where it's where it's not applicable mm. than a you know general medicine practitioner who has the average person coming into his office. Because, um, I mean, it really takes quite a bit of muscle mass to throw it off significantly. I mean, I, I calculated a while back that Arnold Schwarzenegger at his peak um, has a body ma- had a body mass index of just over 30, so he would have been considered obese, yeah. uh, even though his body fat percentage was, you know, maybe 3%. Um, but, I mean, that's really an exception. Most people aren't Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, and I would argue that you know, there are people where it doesn't work that well, uh, for whom it doesn't work that well. But I would say that the combination of body mass index plus just looking at someone is usually pretty accurate. I mean, you can see if someone has a lot of muscle mass, you can see if they have a low muscle mass and a big pot belly. Mm. Um, For example, in uh, particularly in South Asians, it's common that people will have a higher body fat percentage per BMI unit. So someone who has a BMI that's just moderately overweight may have a body fat percentage that's obese. And what you see is that their diabetes risk is correlating with their uh, body fatness, particularly their abdominal body fatness and not so much their body mass index. Um, They will develop diabetes at a body mass index that's much lower than a Caucasian would develop diabetes. But again, this is something that you can determine visually. If a person is in front of you, you can say, okay, well, the body mass index is telling me this person's a little overweight, but I can see that this person is muscular, so Mm. I'm going to act as if this person were lean. Or conversely, the body mass index is telling me this person is only slightly overweight, but I can see they have very little muscle mass and a prominent, uh, a prominent belly. So I'm going to treat this person as if they are very, possibly even obese. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say you don't need a set of skinfold calipers to tell if someone's obese or not. <laughs> I mean, if, we're, if, we're, if you need precision to differentiate 6% from 8% body fat, that's one thing. But when you're talking about someone who's, you know, 10, 20, sorry, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 pounds uh, over fat, um, like you said, that's obviously something 
you can see. And we're, we've got a podcast coming up soon with a guy who's um, an expert on body composition itself. So we, we can leave some of that chat for that particular topic. But um, I, I think it's worth maybe first going into one topic that I find of interest, which is um, this business of whether or not being obese is or is not actually um, quote-unquote healthy for you. Um, you. You may have, I mean, recently there was a whole bunch of stuff going around Twitter. You've got people talking about it's more important to be fit um, and a bit overweight than it is to be overweight and unfit and relating that to mortality risk. Of course, there could be some questions about one's interpretation of causality behind all that. But, I mean, what 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 are your thoughts initially on that? that situation of whether or not you can be obese and healthy or unhealthy? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, So there are a number of studies that have examined this phenomenon of so-called metabolically healthy obesity. So you can find obese people, and it's not not that rare. Anywhere from 10, 15, 20% of obese people are if you just took their blood and did a you know analysis on their blood, you would say this is a healthy, metabolically, cardiovascularly healthy person. Mm. Um, so it's, it is a minority of obese people, but um, it's not uncommon to find people like that. However, um, the question arises, are those people on a trajectory to becoming unhealthy and they just haven't gotten there yet? And so there are several studies that have evaluated that uh, just recently where they do these um, prospective um, cohorts where they look at people over time and they say, okay, let's take a group of these metabolically healthy obese people and let's see what they look like in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And what these studies show is that in 10 years, the overwhelming majority of them are no longer healthy. So these people typically, not always, but typically are on a trajectory to poor health. And, I mean, you know, obesity is, your level of body fatness is one factor in health. It's an important factor. There are other factors, you know, there's your diet quality, there's your physical activity, um, sleep, stress. I think those are all very important. And so at any given level of obesity, you can certainly be more or less healthy, be at a higher or lower risk of chronic disease. Obviously, genetics plays a role there as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not like it's futile to try to be healthy if you're obese and you have a hard time losing weight, you, you know, you still have some control. However, it's absolutely clear that the obese state is not favorable from a metabolic perspective, from a metabolic health perspective. Um, and furthermore, so yeah, there's this question that, that you mentioned of whether, uh, whether you know obesity or physical fitness whether whether leanness or physical fitness are more important for health i i don't know whether i would necessarily I, i'm not going to stick my neck out and say that one <laughs> or the other is more important um but i would argue that they're both extremely important for uh <clears throat> for long term health and not only that that they are linked to one another mm. so someone's physical activity level is one determinant of their their uh, you know body fatness, and a pers- you know conversely, 
a person's body fatness is an important determinant of their physical activity level. Sure. So there's, um, there are certainly links between those two. They're not independent. Um, but I would say that there are a lot of studies. Our, our estimates of how healthy or unhealthy being obese is and how healthy or unhealthy exercising is come primarily from observational studies. Mm. And those studies, as you mentioned, have some pretty important caveats. And um, for the obesity studies in particular, a major caveat is that a lot of things can make you lose weight. You know, if, if you are unhealthy, if, if you have a serious condition, such as diabetes or cancer or any, of, any number of other conditions, whether diagnosed or undiagnosed, those things cause you to lose weight. If you smoke cigarettes, that causes you to lose weight. So when these studies are looking at people and they're saying, okay, well, what we see is that actually underweight people are dying more than obese people and lean people maybe even are dying a little bit more than overweight people. Some studies have reported that kind of a U-shaped relationship between body mass index and total mortality risk. Um, nobody for a long time really knew how much that was confounded by the fact that diseases themselves cause weight loss. Mm -hmm. So maybe these people who are lean, maybe they were people who were lean because they were sick, not sick because they were lean. So that's a phenomenon called reverse causality. And it turns out that there are ways of examining this where you can actually try to get a handle on whether that is explaining these results or not. And so, for example, um, there was a, a guy recently, uh, his name is escaping me, but uh, he, um, he's this researcher who re-examined some of these observational data and he said, okay, let's look at these data in a little bit of a different way. Instead of looking at current body mass index and, and future or past body mass index and current health outcomes, let's look at maximum lifetime body mass index and current health outcomes. So maximum attained body fatness, basically. So that, that kind of eliminates this con confounding factor of weight loss due to disease. It says, at your biggest, how big were you and how healthy are you now? And when you do it that way, you see a much stronger association between body mass index and chronic health problems, including total mortality. So according to this guy's analysis, um, up to one-third of total mortality burden among older U.S. adults is attributable to excess body mass index. So basically one out of three people, one out of three older adults in the U.S. who die, died as a result of having excess body fatness. Um, that's what his, oh yeah, the guy's name is Andrew Stokes. Andrew Stokes. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and that's, that's what his research suggests, and I find it very compelling because he's basically um, kind of skirted around this major limitation of, of these studies. And a couple of other studies that have used other methods have come to similar conclusions. Sure. Well, fortunately, the main angle of, of 
of this podcast is more to do with performance rather than specifically life extension and all that stuff. I mean, we're always interested in health. Um, I've always maintained that a healthy athlete is is the best kind of athlete. You know, the, a healthier athlete adapts better to training. A healthier athlete gets sick left or less often, gets injured less less often, and so on. So, but uh, there's another angle here, of course, and that is that that over fatness is absolutely terrible for performance, possibly with the exception of certain sports like um, sumo wrestling and that sort of thing. For the most part, being over fat is, um, is, a, is a major issue. And many, many of us that work with athletes or recreational athletes, you know, gym goers, just regular members of the public who have an interest in what they look like, uh, they, they will look half-decent, in their uh, swimsuits or, or whatnot, um, this this is a much more significant issue because it, it affects not just their mortality risk, as we've just discussed, but it, it, it affects their day-to-day state of mind, how attractive they feel, um, how 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 they might perform in a in a certain sport, as I mentioned, um, and those are those are all kinds of things that affect many other aspects of, of that person and their life and their quality of life and how happy they are. And, of course, this all feeds back to various things that I'd like to get into um, with you because we've, we've done some podcasts on things like calories and, you know, I've tried to make a point because I believe that it's the wrong topic to talk about calories because we don't eat calories, we eat food. In fact, we don't eat food, we eat meals that contain food. And there's a lot of complexities to that, including how you were raised as a child, you know, do you finish what's on your plate, do you like the taste of the food, what it looks like, what it smells like, there's so many things that can affect this and your sort of hardcore uh, physique athletes or your sort of ripped to the bone personal trainers will think in terms of macros and percentages and, you know, weighing foods and so on but at the end of the day there's a lot of mistruths and half-truths to, to all of that. So I kind of wanted to strip it back a bit. And from your perspective, let's tackle some of these aspects of obesity or over-fatness. Um, I mean, firstly, what of all of the major theories that seem to make some sense, because I know there's more than one, um, behind what makes us over-fat, do you want to just introduce us to a couple of topics and then we can go down a few paths with this sure so um first of all i will say that as you said there are a lot of different theories about what makes us fat and i would say that the large majority of those theories are probably correct Mm. um they by and large these theories are not mutually exclusive and they describe different facets of um the factors that plug into excess body fatness. So, all right, so let me outline a little framework here for thinking about things so we can yeah, sure. uh, take make sense of all these different ideas and kind of uh, think about them a little more systematically. So, uh, the most basic concept is energy, energy balance. Mm-hmm. So, calories going in, calories going out. There are a number of studies on this in my field um, that have been very tightly controlled and the best available science that we have at this point suggests that the number of calories that are being absorbed into the body 
versus the number that are leaving the body is determines body fatness. It's essentially that's what determines how much fat you carry. Um, doesn't really matter whether it's carbohydrate, protein, fat, whatever. Those effects have th- those properties have no effect independent of the calorie value that that food carries, as far as we currently know. Mm. However, and and I'll I'll just put in a little caveat there by saying that I don't think that that understanding is going to stand forever. We already know from animal research that that's not always the case. Mm. Um, however, in humans, the best available evidence indicates that um, the only food property that has been conclusively demonstrated to influence body fatness is its energy value. However, there are a lot of things that determine how much energy we eat and how much energy we absorb. Sure. And that's where it gets a lot more complicated. Hmm. Because, I mean, you can, sure, you can count calories, you can measure calories. But the reality is that that's not the way that most people interact with food. Most people interact with food by seeing it, wanting it, eating until they don't want it anymore, and then not eating it anymore, right? Mm. So as opposed to, it's, it's true that there are some people in the you know, athletic community, the weight loss community who count calories um, as a way of managing body fatness, and that is effective if it's applied um, correctly. However, it's, it's challenging. It's challenging to measure calories accurately, and it's not the way that the body normally regulates energy balance. So not to say that it's impossible or that it's not useful, but for the average person, it's not necessarily going to be the most effective path to body fat management. Hmm. Okay, so energy balance, we have energy balance. So what's determining energy balance? There is physical activity, there's basal metabolic rate. Um, but I think you know what I prefer to focus on the most is what's determining energy in. Um, because you can out-eat any exercise regimen oh, yeah. <laughs> easily. Yeah. And so, I mean, what really matters is whether you are eating more than you're expending. So, and I would say, I would use the word overeating there. If you're eating more than you're expending, you're overeating, unless you're doing it, you know, for some deliberate goal. Hmm. And um, so the question boils down for me, the question of obesity is why do we overeat? And there are essentially two categories of reasons why we overeat. And those are homeostatic eating and non-homeostatic eating. So homeostatic eating refers to eating because of a perceived energy need by the body. So there are circuits in the brain that regulate energy availability in the body. And those circuits are activated when they think you have low energy stores and they will drive hunger, they will drive interest in food, they'll drive thinking about food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one way that we eat. Um, and the other way that we eat is kind of a hodgepodge of different reasons that, w- that I lump under the category of non-homeostatic eating. So that's eating despite the fact that there is no perceived energy need by the body. So, for example, eating because the food tastes really good, having dessert after a large meal, you're not hungry, but you just eat because you want this cake, Mm. Um, eating more because of a social situation, because uh, 
Um, you're drinking an alcoholic beverage or a soda for pleasure, eating more um, because you um, because it's the weekend, eating more because there's more food in front of you. The food is more readily accessible. Eating more because there's a greater food variety. Those are all factors that can influence non-homeostatic food consumption. So that's, that's the framework that I like to think about. There's the homeostatic side, which is my main research um, specialty, and then there's the non-homeostatic side, but both of those um, can drive overeating and fat gain. Sure. Okay. So, so let, let's get into the homeostatic side then because you uh, clearly that's the area you know lots about. I mean, I, I'm guessing what we're going to start thinking about here is you, you mentioned circuits. So obviously there's there are sort of you know loops like feedback loops. There's signaling processes going on. There's there's regulation by um, which, which I'm hoping you can explain. You know the, the brain and there's hormones and you know I'm we're going to be thinking about things possibly like leptin, ghrelin you know, hormone peptides, that sort of thing. I mean, what, so what are, the, what are those mechanisms and, and where can they go wrong? Yeah, so this is one of the things that I really love to talk about because uh, it's, it's something that uh, most people have very little uh, appreciation for or understanding of is how well worked out these brain mechanisms are. I mean, um, in many cases, the brain regions that regulate hunger and food intake are so well worked out that we know down to individual cells and individual cell types in tiny little brain nuclei, we know what role they're playing in appetite. And that's not, that doesn't mean we know everything, but we know a tremendous amount. And I would say that we have, um, I would say that we probably have most of the major at least in outline, most of the major mechanisms of food intake regulation uh, worked out, <clears throat> at least homeostatic food intake regulation. So basically, as you said, um, there are a number of feedback loops in the brain. These are basically negative feedback loops that are designed to maintain the stability of certain um, key variables. And that process of maintaining stability is called homeostasis. So you know, your brain does this for body temperature, your brain does this for blood pressure, your brain does this for a variety of other things that it's trying to maintain within a certain range to optimize your own survival and reproductive success. Um, and one of the things that the brain cares a lot about is energy. So the brain has multiple feedback loops that regulate energy. So uh, these fall into two categories, essentially. There are long-term loops that regulate the amount of energy we have stored as body fat. And then there are short-term loops that regulate food intake on a meal-to-meal -meal basis. So the long-term loop is uh, regulated by a hormone called leptin. Not just leptin, but that's the key hormone that plays the largest role in the system. And um, the part of the brain that does the regulating is... Um, called the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus is a tiny little nucleus that sits um, on the, the bottom of the brain. And what happens is uh, it works a bit like your home thermostat. So your home thermostat detects temperature using a thermometer 
and then it regulates temperature around a set value using heat and air conditioning. That's a homeostatic uh, system or a negative feedback system. So similarly, the hypothalamus measures the level of body fatness using a hormone called leptin. Leptin is produced by fat tissue in proportion to its size. It goes through the circulation and the hypothalamus detects it, not just the hypothalamus, but that's the main, main site for body fat regulation. And then cell types in the hypothalamus that have uh, a prominent role in appetite as well as pretty much anything you can imagine that's related to energy availability in the body, like reproduction um, and physical activity, body temperature, thyroid hormone signaling, sympathetic nervous system activity. Those things are all regulated by these cells in the hypothalamus that are responding to leptin. So if you have a bunch of leptin around, these cells are um, being told that there's a lot of energy in the body, and so they can you know, spend that energy on all sorts of things that you do with your, with your metabolism, with your physical activity. So conversely, if those cells are detecting a lower level of leptin, they're going to say, whoa, we are low on energy here. And we're going to initiate essentially what amounts to a starvation program uh, or starvation response to regain this fat that the hypothalamus is perceiving is being lost. Mm. So if a person tries to lose weight, their leptin goes down and their hypothalamus senses that reduction in leptin and it says, I I don't like this at all, you know, because the reality is the hypothalamus does not care about how you perform at tennis. It doesn't care about how you look in a bathing suit. <laughs> what, what the hypothalamus cares about is keeping you from starving. Mm. And if the hypothalamus thinks you're starving, it's going to let you know it's not happy and it's going to take measures to try to correct the situation. So it's going to increase your hunger, increase your interest in food. It's going to uh, reduce your thyroid hormone signaling, reduce your sympathetic nervous system activity, which reduces calories burned per given uh, muscular contraction, and uh, do all sorts of other things to basically favor energy coming in and disfavor energy leaving the body. And um, so that sets up a situation where a person who's losing weight essentially has a conflict between their conscious uh, abstract goals of performance or, or appearance or whatever versus their unconscious energy regulation system that's basically fighting them. And what we see in uh, randomized controlled trials is that the hypothalamus generally wins in the long term and uh, people are not able to, most people are not able to maintain um, long-term fat loss using most commonly uh, most commonly used strategies. So um, that's that's the long-term loop, and then the short-term loop is is basically a circuit between the the gut and the brain. So the the brain monitors the amount of food, the amount of energy that you've consumed at a meal, and uh, so there are gut peptides that are produced, um, ghrelin goes down, GLP-1 goes up, um, 
CCK goes up, you get signals coming from the stomach that signal uh, stomach distension. These things all converge in the brainstem, which integrates all that and basically makes you feel full. Um, so that's the other, the other system. So basically that system is designed to cause you to lose interest in food when you've had enough to satisfy your energy needs and particularly to cause you to stop eating before you do physical or metabolic damage to yourself. Yeah. I, uh, it's funny, I just, um, I just read a paper actually, which is um, a review that just came out in Nature about uh, titled Nutrient Sensing Mechanisms and Pathways, um, all about the body's ability to sense and respond to fluctuations in environmental nutrient levels and the fact that, as you've mentioned, is, is exquisitely related to our survival. And reading, I won't go into that paper, that's a whole other topic, but it is it is it is a fact that our body does sense these things and it knows what's going on and the environment in which we place ourselves has a profound impact in how our body responds to that clearly and um, just reading between the lines uh, two things that spring to mind based on what some other guests have talked about for example we did a a podcast on uh, metabolic adaptation with um, Lane Norton and Abby Smith-Ryan. And one of the things that came out of that, of course, was um, there are two two things that, that I think has a link to what you're saying, which, of course, is firstly the, the, the energy gap itself, i.e. the amount of calories a person cuts uh, and the speed at which they attempt to achieve this both brings about very negative responses to the body is that I mean is that is that fair to say and is that is that what's engaging these mechanisms yeah that's right I mean primarily what's yeah it's it's basically your fat stores declining as well as um, the lower calorie intake both of those things cause um, your signals of body energy availability to go down which tells the brain to try to seek um, to restore energy balance. So, yeah, it is perceived as a negative thing by the hypothalamus and the brainstem, and uh, those brain regions initiate very ancient, very deeply seated mechanisms to try to try to solve the problem. Right. And it doesn't it doesn't mean that we can't make conscious decisions to override those things, but sure. it is challenging because you're essentially fighting yourself. It's essentially one part of your brain fighting another part of your brain mm. and it's effortful. I mean the the what I was thinking really was was the extremes to which people attempt to do this, don't they? I mean you hear about crash diets. You've only got to watch those TV shows like Biggest Loser, um th- those kinds of things where you know you've got clearly obese people cutting not not hundreds of calories, but thousands of calories off their diet every day. Um, they're trying to do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of calories of exercise per day, and both of which are extremes to these people. Their, their bodies aren't used to doing that much activity, and all of a sudden they're doing tons of exercise. Um, but more importantly, potentially to this, is the sudden massive drop in energy intake. Um, and do you do you feel that it's not... It's not the fact that we're trying to cut calories. Is it, is it the extremes to which people are doing this and therefore the, this, this neurobiological response to this process that ultimately 
sabotages are, you know, most people's success in this? Well, let me explain it this way. So think about it like a rubber band. Think about the hypothalamus' response like a rubber band. Mm. If you just stretch the rubber band a little bit, it's not going to oppose your force very much. But the more you stretch it, the more opposition you encounter. And that's the way it is for, for these responses. So for the hypothalamus, the hypothalamus is mostly tuned in to your level of body fatness. So it doesn't matter so much whether you're losing fat fast or slow. What matters is the degree of loss that you have attained at the current moment. And the more fat you lose, the more of a firmer response the hypothalamus is going to kick in. So at first, you know, there's, there's some wiggle room in there where, and, and it's probably genetically determined where, when the hypothalamus really starts to kick in, but there's some wiggle room in there where an overweight or obese person might be able to lose 10 pounds without the hypothalamus really noticing or caring. Um, but then when they, comp- when they continue to lose, um, eventually they're going to start to feel a little bit more hungry. They're going to start to feel a little more interested in food. They're going to be thinking a little more about that slice of cake or piece of pizza. Their brain is going to be more oriented toward cues that signal calorie-dense foods. Um, but if they continue doing that, not only does that response get stronger, but the brain starts to shut down or kind of pare back uh, calorie expenditure as well. So when you have someone who's lost a lot of weight, I'm sure you've encountered people who say, oh, I lost, you know, 50 pounds or 100 pounds and I feel cold all the time. Oh, yeah, loads times, yeah. Yeah, I feel cold, I feel sluggish. And if you look at what happens, their body is cutting back calorie expenditure by, you know, sometimes hundreds of calories per day. Part of that decline just relates to the fact that they're smaller than they were and their tissues need less energy. But even if you look at it on a lean mass adjusted basis, their calorie expenditure is going down as part of this um, starvation response by the brain. So their brain is saying, all right, we're, um, this is serious, so I'm going to shut down heat production so you're going to feel cold. I'm going to shut down your um, desire to do physical activity. I'm going to shut down your sexual drive, your menstruation. I'm going to shut down your, um, the number of calories that you're burning per muscular contraction. Your physical performance may start to suffer. Your immune system may start to weaken um, because that's an energy-demanding process. So basically, the further down that path you go, the more that response is activated. Right. I mean, it gets complicated, doesn't it? Um, and I, this, this obviously, you've spent years learning foundational stuff and then your own individ, you know, specific research on this. Uh, so we're certainly not going to get this um, in a 50-odd minute podcast. Um, so I, th- I have a sneaky feeling we're going to have to get you back to talk about <laughs> uh, some of the more specific specifics of this homeostatic uh side of it which i think is absolutely fascinating and maybe 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 potentially delve a little bit into the non-homeostatic or or maybe get someone else in and and Mm -hmm. do that because i think this is this is a really important topic for us to get into and i I didn't want to let you go 
we've still got a few minutes left here and I, I, I did want to get your angle on this business of um, carbohydrates and proteins and so on. I mean, at the end of the day, I think I, I, I'm very much going to agree with you from my own perspective as a practitioner. It's The observation always boils down to the energy coming in is the biggest thing that we need to focus on. And ironically, lots of people, are, you know, they're out there working out what is the best possible workout they can do in the world and yet they're only training twice a week <laughs> uh, or, or you know that sort of thing is is, is kind of kind of scary really when they're ignoring uh, what they do many times a day every day um, uh, for the rest of the mm-hmm. week but the big debate that does keep going on and I know that you have some interest because I've been reading your blog on this to cheat a little bit um, but <laughs> this this business of 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 low carb or or um, or uh, uh, high protein or high fat, uh, sorry, uh, uh, low fat, you know, high protein, whatever. Th- those particular three macros, um, over and above, specifically talking about energy itself. I mean, wh- how do you feel they relate to this situation? Yeah. So. You know, the low-carb diet has become quite popular and, you know, low-carb paleo possibly even more so these days. Um, and there's a reason for that. The reason is that it allows people, many people, to have a more normal relationship with food, I would argue. So, as I said before, we eat when we have a desire to eat and we stop when that desire no longer exists. That's how we normally interact with food and that's that's the most natural most sustainable way to interact with food right Mm. so you can eat nothing but pizza and ice cream and you can count your calories and yes you can remain lean doing that but I would argue that that's more painful than designing a diet and food environment that naturally leads to a healthy calorie intake and so um, with the low carb diet at least some people find that they can eat food when they want to eat food and stop eating when they don't want to eat food anymore and that naturally allows them to lose at least some amount of weight you know it's not it's not turning obese people into lean people uh there's no diet that is at least it doesn't do that very often mm. um you know despite the amazing internet success stories that that you read well, they must um, be true. They must be true, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I believe that it happens occasionally. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it does. Yeah. Certainly it happens occasionally, yeah. but that's not representative <laughs> at all. It's not yeah. typical. And we have a number of randomized controlled trials mm-hmm. showing that, you know, a low-carb diet is a nice way to lose weight for six months. Mm-hmm. Um, for the average person, once you get out to a year, you're seeing... Uh, with you know people who are being relatively adherent, you're seeing typically 10 to 15 pound uh, long-term weight loss that is starting to converge with other approaches like lower fat or Mediterranean diet, things like that. Sure. Um, but so so all of that is just to say that you know there's a reason why it's popular. There's some validity to it. So I want to acknowledge that first. Um, but I also want to say that there's a lot of baloney going around about why it works. Um, I think that um, 
the idea that it's due to a reduction in circulating insulin, um, I'm not going to say that I'm 100% confident it's wrong, but I think it's unlikely to be correct. Mm. Um, And certainly the idea that obesity is caused by elevated insulin, I think is very unlikely to be correct. Um, I think elevated insulin is an epiphenomenon of leptin and insulin resistance in the brain, which is the thing that's actually contributing to fat gain and, and obesity. But that being said, I mean, you, you see people losing weight on low-carb diets even if they're not deliberately restricting calories. But if you look at their calorie intake, if you measure it objectively using the best tools we have, what you see is that their calorie intake is going down, and it's going down in a manner that's 100% consistent with the weight loss that's observed. So basically, that dietary pattern is causing people to naturally, just naturally through the natural energy regulating pathways of the brain and body, is causing them to eat less food and to lose weight and to be comfortable at that reduced weight. So... um. And then the question arises, why does that happen? Um, Well, most of the evidence that we have currently suggests that it's mostly due to the increased protein component rather than the reduced carbohydrate. So there are studies that um, modify protein intake at the expense of fat without changing carbohydrate. And what you see is a suppression of calorie intake and um, weight loss that's very similar to what you observe with low-carb diets. Um, Conversely, if you modify carbohydrate and fat without changing protein, you don't really get much of an effect at all. If anything, increasing fat at the expense of carbohydrate tends to cause weight gain um, in humans and, and a variety of experimental animals particularly if the fat is increasing the calorie density of the diet. So um, it seems to relate a lot to the protein, and I think this is really interesting because protein acts in the hypothalamus, and it acts on these energy-regulating circuits, both in the hypothalamus and in the brainstem. So uh, the energy-regulating systems of the hypothalamus does not only respond to energy intake, it also responds to protein intake. So if you are eating a high-protein diet, your hypothalamus may be satisfied with a lower level of body fatness. In other words, it may be responding as if you had a higher body fatness and, and feeling comfortable with the lower body fatness, even though you have more, because it's getting a signal that you're eating a lot of protein, and that converges with the energy signal. Mm. Um, at the same time, the brainstem um, circuits that regulate satiety, those are activated by protein disproportionately as well. So protein is the most satiating macronutrient on a meal-to-meal basis. And if you eat a high-protein meal or a high-protein diet, you can be satisfied on fewer calories on a meal-to-meal basis as well. So, um, yeah, so that, that pretty much sums up my thoughts on, on yeah. low-carb diet. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, we've, I've tackled this topic with all sorts of people, and um, 
I, I, I have to throw the word context into this, which um, comes up in every, uh, every podcast. And it, it does depend on what we're talking about, of course. And this conversation might be different with an elite athlete, might be different with an endurance athlete, might be different from an obese person, someone who's got a clinical health disorder. I mean, there's, there's different ways you might tackle this. But one thing I think it's fair to say is, you know, one person's idea of low carb is another person's idea of high carb. So there's problems in that too, isn't there, where people are talking about um, having a low carb diet and, t- and, and people will interpret that as, well, I shouldn't eat any carbs at all, um, which isn't necessarily what we're talking about. And of course, then that takes us to the whole keto thing. And we've, we've actually gotten into that already another. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And you know, one thing that I didn't mention that I do want to emphasize is that things change a little bit when you get into that ketogenic range. Mm. Um, when you get to the macronutrient extremes, you get effects that are not necessarily consistent with what you would get by changing the macronutrients in the middle range. Yeah. So you can get um, different effects if you're eating a very, very low carbohydrate ketogenic diet. And you can also get qualitatively different effects by eating a very, very low fat, very, very high carbohydrate diet. But everything in the middle besides that metabolically is very, very similar Yeah. in yeah. terms of fat to carbohydrate ratio. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, we look, we could go on for ages on this. I've got so many questions for you. Um, but <laughs> we have no time. We're going we're gonna to have to zip this one up. So... Um, I, I think it's good to end with more questions to ask because that just means that we've got more topics to come up with. So um, I'd love to thank you for your time. But before I say goodbye, let's just let folks know how they can learn more about uh, you and what you're up to and uh, uh, follow your blog and Twitter and so on. So your website is wholehealthsource.org. That's W-H-O-L-E healthsource.org. Your Twitter, remind me of your Twitter. It's WH Source. Brilliant. So at WH Source. So that's, that's the easy way uh, of, of, of getting a hold of you. I, I certainly recommend, I've, I've been following your blog for a while and I, I've, I've, I love the way you write in a more balanced way. And uh, Thank it, you. It's a great learning resource. It's opened my mind a lot about this and I'm, I'm, uh, I don't have any ambitions of studying neurobiology. Uh, <laughs> uh, I leave that up to folks like you, but it is a fascinating angle on what is a, a topic that is widely debated just from the energy balance point of view. And I like this, this angle, which is humanistic um, in, in every way, boiled down to the cellular level. So it's kind of cool. Um, so uh, thank you folks for listening. Thank you, Stefan, once again. Um, That brings us to the end of this episode 33 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. If you want to learn more about um, this podcast and other podcasts, please go to guruperformance.com. And I am Laurent Bannock, and I'll be bringing another podcast back to you very soon.